Last week we looked at who the Holy Spirit is, and so today we're going to dedicate the first half of the message looking at who the Holy Spirit is as the third person in the Trinity, what Christians term as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then we'll dedicate the second half of the message to looking at what the Holy Spirit does, and so specifically looking at John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Now, my hope in this Holy Spirit series isn't just to kind of inundate you with information and just so that you have things to think about, but rather that we would nurture and we would develop a deeper, closer relationship, a more intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. So let me pray for us to invite the Holy Spirit to be with us. Come Holy Spirit, fall afresh upon us. And we ask for your power, we ask for your understanding, we ask that you would help us navigate these things that we're going to be sharing in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in looking at the Trinity, it's a huge subject matter, so let's not think that we're going to figure all of this out in the next 10, 15 minutes, right? So there's a great deal of mystery with God, and it's impossible for our finite minds to fully comprehend an infinite God. So this is going to bother some of you. This is going to bother some people because we like to have explanations for everything, and not many of us can even fully understand ourselves, though. So how are we going to even think that we're going to understand or fully understand a God? Because I don't even fully understand myself, quite frankly. And you know who I really don't understand is my wife. I I don't understand the amount of love that she pours out to me or my children. Like, that's just really bizarre to me. Like, there's no, like, equation for that, right? I don't understand the amount of sacrifice she pours out to our family. There's no equation like things don't really make sense for those types of things and I think it's the same for many of you where we really don't understand how the amount of love is being poured upon us or how the love that we have for people how that is happening like where is that all coming from and so it's all kind of mysterious and, and none of it is really scientific and none of it is really empirical and you can't really figure any of those types of things out and so this mystery this goes with God that mysteries with God. And so when thinking about why three persons in one God, I don't know if this sounds like this to you, but to me, it sounds like multiple personality disorder, right? What in the world? Like, why would you possibly want to do that? Why would you possibly want to complicate things like that? Why can't we just say God and not these Father, Son, Holy Spirit and all these other things? I mean, why does the Trinity even matter? Because it seems like it's just a lot of complications to something that's already mysterious and we're just complicating the thing even some more. But it is mysterious and with my limited capacity to reason and my limited capacity to think, I think that community has a really good part in this because all of us need community and specifically a spiritual community by having interpersonal relationships with the Holy Spirit. But prior to people developing such an intimate communion with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has, by example, these beautiful intimate relationships with God the Father, Jesus the Son, already established. It's already there. So the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, is this self-sufficing community of three glorious personal beings of infinite love, right, omnibenevolence, infinite power, omnipotence, infinite knowledge, omniscience, and infinite presence, omnipresence. 
and they share all these things and they live out eternally this mutual acceptance, this mutual consideration, this mutual respect, this mutual love for one another in a holy and righteous communion. How things ought to be. And so the cosmos all around us, they're held together because of this Trinitarian community that is already kind of an example for us. It is an example of community through the Trinity, and we have this model to live out our lives, this interpersonal relationship with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with all of creation. And so here's this model, and here's this example, and I think that's why. Now, we can do an entire series on the Trinity. It is a large subject matter. There's seminary classes dedicated to this, but that's not the purpose of our study this morning. The purpose of this series is to encourage a deeper relationship with the Holy Spirit and that it is possible because it's already been proven. It has been proven to be able to have an intimate relationship. The Holy Spirit has already proven his relationships with God the Father and Jesus the Son and those who have gone before us that those relationships have already developed and they've already shown to be very successful, really great. Now, I do want to invest some time into looking at some biblical passages to show evidence of the Trinity because this eternal community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is really important to understand since they are co-equal, co-eternal, and it's evident that the Holy Spirit has authority in our spiritual lives. Because sometimes we want to put the Holy Spirit in a pecking order, right? It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So Father is always the top, and the Holy Spirit is kind of the runt of the three. And I'm going to attempt to show you that that is not true. Okay, so let's start by going into Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. have a tendency to do this, to go through the whole Bible, but that's what we do here. So Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning, God... Now, the Hebrew word for God here in this verse is Elohim. The interesting thing about that is that is a plural noun, right? If it were a singular noun, the writer would have put El, but this is Elohim. So the first word we have for God is in plural form. What we have here is God addressed in the plural form beginning in Genesis 1.1. So let's read verses 1 and 2 in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, plural, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So what we have here, God in the plural form in verse 1, and then the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, already there in verse 2. Now you jump down to verse 26, because I want to point out what God said here. This is really fascinating. Look at this, verse 26. And God, Elohim, plural form, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Do you notice the plural pronouns? It's not uh, let me make man in my image after my likeness. Us, our, our. All three persons of the triune God contributing to creation. Now, let's head over to the New Testament and look at John, Gospel of John, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, this is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
And Paul concurred with this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, Jesus, were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus, the Son, is creator. And so is the Holy Spirit, as we read in Genesis chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is also found in Psalm chapter 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. The Hebrew word for breath is ruach. Ruach means breath, wind, spirit, or mind. So in other words, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the spirit of his mouth, all their hosts. So we see the critical role the Holy Spirit plays in creation. He also plays a critical role in redemption. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Jesus knew what a critical role the Holy Spirit would play in redemption. That even in his great commission, he said, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Like I said earlier, because the Holy Spirit is the third in the Great Commission, I think sometimes people often think that he is inferior to God the Father or inferior to Jesus the Son, but it's not the case. They are co-equal. Romans chapter 15, verse 30, has the order totally changed. It has Jesus first, the Spirit second, and God the Father last. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So it's not like a pecking order or anything like that. If the Holy Spirit was less than, why would Peter tell the gathering of people who were at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, he said this, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. If the Holy Spirit is less than, why would Jesus need the anointing of the Holy Spirit? And if you look at Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back from yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So you see how Luke recorded that lying to the Holy Spirit. He was equating that to lying to God. They're co-equal. John stated this clearly in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are co-equal. The Holy Spirit also is co-eternal. It wasn't created. Co-eternal with God and Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, let's look at the Holy Spirit who possesses the same characteristics as God. And so, first we're going to take a look at the omnibenevolence. Omnibenevolent. Right? All loving. All good. 
all righteous. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. God's love has been poured into the hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 15, 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And lastly, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He's also omniscient. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's omnipresent. Psalm chapter 139, verses 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He's omnipotent. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel answered Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born to be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity, the triune God. God sent him as a gift to us as Jesus asked God for another helper for us. The paraclete, the paracletus, as we talked about last week. The comforter, the helper, the advocate who comes alongside, who comes to aid as we live our life with him. And he comes alongside to help us in the way of truth. And last week, we looked at John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. And then we went through how the Holy Spirit comes alongside us, abiding, instructing, teaching, reminding, bearing witness, guiding, directing, helping, interceding, empowering, fellowshipping, and speaking to mold us into the image of Christ. So now that we've established that the Holy Spirit is co-equal, he is co-eternal, he has authority, and the characteristics of God, the Father, and Jesus, we're going to move to the second half of the message. That wasn't that painful, right? That's all right. And so we're going to dig a little deeper as to what the Holy Spirit does using John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11 as our text. It reads this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I do, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So let's take a look first at the Holy Spirit convicting the world concerning sin, because they do not Believe in me. Back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, in the time of Noah, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. Now, why did he say that? 
Because if you jump down a couple verses in verse 5 in Genesis chapter 6, it reads, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Holy Spirit convicted the world in Noah's time concerning sin. And he abided, meaning he strived, he contended, he pleaded with the people to turn from their wicked ways, but they rejected the Holy Spirit. They knew that they did evil. They knew that what they were doing was against God, but they did it anyway. And they hardened their hearts, they closed their mind to the Holy Spirit. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? Because it's not just back in Noah's time, right? It happened back then, happening today. And what God said in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 still holds true. My spirit shall not abide in man forever. Now what's going on? What's happening in the hearts and the minds of people? Well, let's first take a look at Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And it's speaking in regards to the heart, the conscience, and the thoughts of people. Starting in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." God's law is written on people's heart whether they know it or not. Their conscience bears witness. It testifies against them and so do their thoughts. There's no transformation. There's no regeneration. And you take a look at what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-2. through 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are sealed. Their ability to feel, to perceive, to sense what the Holy Spirit is communicating is gone. Their consciences are seared. They can't receive what the Holy Spirit is sharing with them. Now, I have a question for you. Have we progressed into being better people any time in history? Do we do more good today than in generations past? Really? Think about this. Because I would argue, no. Because there are more slaves today than in any other time in all of human history. National Geographic reported there are more slaves today than were seized from Africa in four centuries of the transatlantic slave trade. Are we better today? It seems to me that we are losing consciousness when it comes to evil. People are losing touch with what is evil and horrendous offenses are being committed with no remorse. A couple of months ago, there was this pretty big news story in Ohio. Right, a rape case, high school football team. It was uh, Steubenville, Ohio. I don't know if you guys remember this story breaking or not. A couple of uh, high school football players sexually assaulted a classmate who was totally passed out because she drank too much. And they referred to her as the dead girl. 
And so they totally took advantage of her. They filmed what they did. They took photos. They posted it on social media. No consciousness of what is evil. And the prosecutor of the case said this. They showed absolutely no regard for what happened to the victim. And that lack of remorse, that is appalling. Even when they face judgment, right? One of the criminals wasn't remorseful of the rape, never apologized for the rape. What he apologized for was underage drinking late at night. The sexual assault didn't even register. It was because they were drinking underage and it was late at night. What is even more disturbing? It wasn't just these two guys that were there. It was a party. So all their classmates and all their friends, they were there, and they were interviewed about the crime. And so they had them come in, and they have this taping, and they're videotaping, and they're showing this. And they are completely out of touch that anything wrong happened. Totally out of touch, because they also filmed it. And they also took photos, and they tweeted it, and they Instagrammed it, and they posted it on social media. And the court hearings found that nobody who saw the victim lying there, just unclothed, unresponsive, no one in that entire party helped her. No one threw a blanket over her. No one tried to get her to go home. Nothing left her there. Just stood there. Watch this whole thing happen because they were just recording their party, not thinking that they were recording a crime. Their conscience has been seared. Their heart hardened. And the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, but we can harden our hearts and we can resist the Holy Spirit. In Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12, it is written, They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen was talking to the Jewish council, and he said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. When a person's heart is hardened and they resist the Spirit, there is no other option except for judgment. What other option is there if we want justice to prevail? What else is there? Justice has to prevail, doesn't it? And God is a God of righteousness. He is a God of goodness. He is a God of justice. Yet the world wants to do as it pleases. And it wants to self-determine what is right and what is wrong rather than yielding to God. Isn't that the original sin? Isn't that what Adam and Eve struggled with? Because they thought they knew better than God. It's not about a fruit on a tree. This is about them thinking we make better choices than God. We know better than God. Don't do that. I don't think so. And they were going to play the role of God. That's what they were guilty of. And that's what we have in our world today. People who think that they know better than God. And so they mock God. And they mock righteousness. And they mock Jesus. And they mock holiness. And they mock the Holy Spirit. They mock all these things that God is standing for. Now back to verse 9. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the world that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. For the salvation of the world from sin is through Him, but some people don't believe that. It's that fruit on the tree. We know better. It's this. Or it's me. Or it's just me being good. Now, in biblical times, names mean 
a lot. They mean an awful lot. Names bear one's character, their personality, their purpose, their mission. So what does Jesus mean? The angel told Mary in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What the Holy Spirit does is he bears witness. He testifies to the world their sin. Because they don't believe in Jesus and they need Jesus for the salvation of their sins. There's no other way. And so that's what he does. He shows them their sin. And this recurring rejection of the Spirit bearing witness in the hearts of people that they are sinning, that recurring rejection is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 through 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is the unpardonable sin. And this is what leads to everlasting separation between somebody who does not repent and God. That everlasting separation is hell. Sometimes we have these images of hell. Fire and somebody down there with a pitchfork and a pointy tail and a forked tongue prodding at you and all this kind of stuff. Let me make hell really simple for you. There's no God. It's an eternal separation of nothingness. And what do we know of God? God is love. There is no love. Isn't that hell? And Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil." For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. People around the world are suffering from a seared conscience, continuing to reject Jesus. John wrote in John chapter 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Forgiveness or condemnation? The forgiveness is grace. The condemnation is justice. They're both good things. Right? Grace and justice, those are both good things. But our belief in Jesus determines which one we're going to receive. Forgiveness or condemnation. 
Those who believe in Jesus receive forgiveness. They receive grace. They receive unmerited favor. They receive something they do not deserve. Those who don't receive condemnation. They receive justice. They receive what they do deserve. They're both good things. We want justice, right? Justice is a good thing. Justice is good in that it is just. People who do something get something. That is just. You commit a crime, you get this. You kill somebody, you get this. You steal something, you get this. You lie to federal authorities about terrorism, you get this. Right? It is a good thing. But justice to the guilty, even though it is right and even though it is a good thing, it is miserable to whoever's guilty. It's a miserable state. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Secondly, in verse 10, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin and he convicts the world concerning righteousness. Now, sin is defined to be without share in, to miss the mark, to err, to be mistaken. And the Holy Spirit convicts the world in regards to missing the mark. Righteousness is defined as being how one ought to be. How things ought to be. To be acceptable to God. And the Holy Spirit convicts the world as to how things ought to be. What's acceptable to God. And we look to Jesus as the epitome, the model, the example of how things ought to be. Righteousness. The example of righteousness. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21-24, through 24, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. He was never without share in the kingdom of God. He always had share. We have lost our share because of sin. He never lost His share. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins. He bore our mistakes. He bore our wrongs. In his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we would live as things ought to be. To live acceptable to a holy God. By His wounds, you have been healed. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness by pointing to Jesus as the epitome of righteousness with the hope of redeeming us to be in Jesus' image because we were created in God's image. In Genesis, we were created in the image of God. And the Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness to return us to how things ought to be. Before sin, before the fall, before Adam and Eve decided that they were going to be be God. And that we know better. To return us to a place before sin destroyed our relationship with God and made it unacceptable for us to have community with a holy righteous God and the Holy Spirit leads us to the path of righteousness concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer what is that all about Jesus was talking about his ascension what does the Holy Spirit bear witness to about righteousness and the ascension 
Well, Paul asked this rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he points out all these offenses that bring about condemnation. He does the same thing when he writes a letter to the Galatians. He does the same thing when he writes a letter to the Ephesians. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16, 21, he wrote this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul wrote, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The Holy Spirit is convicting the world of their sin. He is bearing witness to their unrighteousness, and he testifies to the world about their righteousness pointing us to a righteous life, pointing us to a holy life, denying a life of the flesh, and the epitome of a righteous and holy life, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The proof? The ascension of Jesus into heaven. He was accepted. He was accepted as he was. He lived a righteous, holy life, and he ascended into heaven. Our ascension to the kingdom of God will only happen through righteousness. Only through righteousness. Well, we're doomed, right? I mean, I I look at what Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5. Things don't look good for me. They really don't. Fits of anger is on there. Envy is on there. Covetous, idolatry is on there. I'm done, man. Just having one of those things, just one, you're out. I have at least four. (laughs) Those are the ones that just jump out to me the most because those are the ones I struggle with the most. But I have at least four. Thank God it's not my righteousness. You only go through, through righteousness, but thank God it's not my righteousness. Thank God it's not about good intentions. Thank God it's not about good thoughts and good deeds and that just my balance is better on the good side than the bad side. I mean, thank God that I cannot earn my way into the kingdom of heaven because I can't. None of us can. None of us can. Anyone not have something on Paul's list right here? Anybody? You don't have one thing that's on here. The Bible says there is only one that is righteous. There's only one righteous one. That is Jesus Christ. That is it. There's only one person who can give you entry into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ. Only through faith and trust in him will you gain entry to the kingdom of God. There is no other way to earn entry. It is only by faith in Jesus. And thank God he was willing to do that for me. Thank God he's willing to do that for you guys. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, 
not a truth. I am the life, not a life. There is no other option. He's not being inclusive at all. He is exclusive. No one comes to the Father except through me. I didn't say it. I didn't make Christianity up. He said this. Right? It's in the Bible. So please do not believe the lies of the world. Because no one will be granted entry because they are good. Because they're sincere in their beliefs. Or they've done more good than they've done bad. It's not that way. If that is the case, then that is justice and that is good and you will be condemned. You want justice? All of you don't even pass 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, or Ephesians 5. You really want justice because the wages of sin is death. We want grace. We want what we don't deserve. Right? And only through faith and trust in Him will any of us gain entry into the kingdom of God. Because God cannot tolerate sin at all. At all. And that's why Jesus was sent to die for our sins. Otherwise, why even bother? Why bother? Just keep the old law. Keep things the way that they were. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ. And you must have the faith and believe what Jesus did for you. Otherwise, it doesn't apply. You fall into condemnation and not forgiveness. You get justice. You don't get grace. And that doesn't mean that those who believe in Jesus have a license to live like hell and expect that they're going to go to heaven. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. What Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 6, those are all true. Those folks will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is only through the righteousness of Jesus that is imparted to us by faith and that we trust in him. Only Jesus lived that kind of life accepted by God as evidenced by his ascension. His ascension was evidence of God's acceptance of his righteous life. That one's acceptable. Now lastly, verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The third thing the Holy Spirit convicts the world of is judgment because the ruler of this world, Satan, is judged. The judgment happened on the cross that Jesus died on. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus triumphed over the rulers and authorities of darkness on that cross. And the evidence of his victory was proven in his resurrection. The acceptance of a righteous life was received by God as evidence in his ascension. And the ruler of this world is judged through Jesus as testified by the Holy Spirit. Now the world is still under the power of Satan, but the Holy Spirit bears witness to the world that judgment has already been pronounced. It's been pronounced. Now there's this not yet aspect to the kingdom of God, but as followers who walk in the Spirit and belong to Jesus now, we have power over darkness and we're free. 
John chapter 8, verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus sets us free. Free from the bondage of sin. And if you haven't experienced this freedom, believe what Jesus did for you. You could believe right now. You can have faith now. Have faith that the powers of darkness have already been defeated by Jesus on the cross and you have been set free from the power of sin. It doesn't mean that you're going to be sinless. But you don't have to go through life defeated. Because the Holy Spirit is with you, reminding you of Jesus' victory and that Satan has already been judged. We aren't the ones who are righteous. Our sin condemns us. But Jesus, the righteous one who died for us, that his righteousness is upon us and we know we don't have to be ruled by sin any longer. Let me leave you with what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, 11 through 14. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. But grace is only for the believer. Forgiveness is only for the believer. The other side is justice. That is condemnation. That is just. But sin will have no dominion over you as a believer. Satan has already been judged. Justice has already been pronounced. Forgiveness or condemnation. It's just that the actual everlasting term sentence that he's going to serve hasn't happened yet. The victory belongs to Jesus. And he has set us free from the bondage of sin. The Holy Spirit testifies to that. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you so much for how you convict us of sin, how you convict us of righteousness, as well as judgment. I pray, Lord, that people would recognize your goodness and that you offer grace and that you offer justice. And both of those things are really good. I ask, Lord, that folks' hearts would be softened, their minds open. That if their conscience has been seared, Lord, that you would repair that so that they would be receptive of what you have to say to them. That they would move in the path of forgiveness. Move away from the sentencing of condemnation and justice and move towards the path of forgiveness if they would simply have faith that you died for them so that they could have relationship with you. So Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not have a relationship with you or that communion is still broken with you, that they would want that repaired, that they would receive Jesus so Jesus, you would usher them in to being acceptable to God, righteous, because your blood covers them. Your death covers them. In Jesus' name, amen.